As we've been going through Mark 14, we're coming to the end of this book. Today in two more weeks will lead us to the end of, of the Gospel of Mark. The events of chapter 14 that we're in today lead us up to the crucifixion of Jesus. The importance of these passages cannot be overstated, both spiritually and their importance for the early church. The evidence that these events are so important partly is seen in the great space given to them in the narrative of the Gospel of Mark. Mark has 661 verses in it. 242 of those verses are devoted to the last week of Jesus' life. That's nearly 37% of the entire gospel is devoted to the last week of Jesus' life. 128 of those verses are devoted to the events of the crucifixion and the resurrection. Nearly 20% of the entire gospel is related to those two events. The early church had much more than simply a historical interest in this. These passages, these truths for the early church were the foundation and the lifeblood of its witness and of its worship and of its power for the early church, and they should be for ours as well. The witnessing church proclaimed a crucified and living Jesus, and the worshiping church reflected on these very events. The overarching theme of the last chapters of Mark are the purpose and the plan of the kingdom of God. From a human perspective, it seemed as though the world was spinning out of control, overrun by chaos. A lot like our world today, right? Very similar then as well. Yet God, through Jesus was accomplishing the purpose of the kingdom. In what seemed to be chaos, in what seemed to be turmoil, God was accomplishing the kingdom and its purpose. Jesus was keenly aware of the agenda of the kingdom and the sovereignty of God's control over all things. And while wicked men were planning his betrayal and crucifixion, Jesus announced that his body was simply being anointed for burial. Jesus knew that he would be betrayed. He knew that he would be denied. He knew that he would be uh, struck. And he knew that he would be deserted. And while deeply dreading it, because of the kingdom, he submitted to the divine will of the Father and to the kingdom's purpose. And at the end of it all, he would announce to the high priest you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Confident sure and undistracted. Jesus was undistracted and resolute in his pursuit of the kingdom of God. And in Mark 14, we see it begin to flesh its way out in people's lives and their response to the events leading up to the crucifixion. Now, here's the thing. Church people, we can talk all we want about kingdom ideas on Sunday morning. We can talk all we want about religious principles and truths and in, in the Bible, we can talk all we want about the details of Mark and the intricacies of Scripture. We can talk a lot. 
But we have to remember this about the kingdom. The kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. And until our talk becomes action endowed with the power of the kingdom of God, it means very little. And until that power of the kingdom of God that is more than just mere talk determines our life and activity, all we are is playing religious games. The kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but a matter of power. And so I want you to join me in Mark 14. It's a very long chapter, 70 plus verses. When I showed up to church today, my friend Chuck, who was working the first service in the back, uh, he said, uh, Pastor, thank you for encouraging us to read chapter 14 through those push notifications. It was important that I read that in, 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 in preparation for this morning. And, and I thought about asking how many of you read through the entire chapter in preparation for this morning, but I'm just going to believe that all of you got the push notification and all of you read it, so you're highly prepared for this morning. There's a lot to get through. And in chapter 14, I'm going to, take, I'm going to jump some for big chunks of it. But what we will see is the witness, the war, the warning, and the way of the kingdom of God. Look what the Bible says, Mark 14, starting in verse 3. While he, Jesus, was in Bethany reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar, a very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why the waste of this perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She's done, she has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you. And you can help them anytime you want. Realize what he's saying there. He's saying that the poor... The solution to poverty is not a governmental program. It's not the redistribution of wealth. It's not a new uh, person in office. The solution to poverty is you and me. And Jesus said, you're always going to have them with you. And if you want to help them, help them. The solution to poverty, he says, is you. You know why there's poor? And it continues to be an unsolved epidemic because we don't want to help. And that's what Jesus said. Right? Okay, I'll get back to the Bible. I'll, I'll stop talking about that. I can tell we're on a little shaky ground there. But you will not always have me, Jesus said. She's done what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. I, I want us to pay attention to something about the kingdom of God. The witness of the kingdom is sacrifice. The witness of the kingdom of God is sacrifice. See, the fact remains, we can say all we want that God, his ways, and his kingdom are important to us. But until we sacrifice for its sake, it simply remains lip service. Mary's pouring of perfume on Jesus was not done because she understood it to be a messianic anointing, that he was the Messiah anointing him for burial. That's what Jesus translated it into, but that's not why she did it. 
Nor did she pour this perfume on Jesus out of obligation and recognition of his deity as the Holy One necessarily. It was done simply as an act of love and devotion because of all that Jesus had done in her life. Jesus accepted her gift and increased its value. Please understand, when Christ followers, when people of the kingdom sacrifice, we don't sacrifice or give due to obligation because we have to. Kingdom sacrifice and giving is motivated solely from love and devotion. That's the heart of the kingdom. And the witness that we are people of the kingdom is seen in our sacrifice. Out of love and devotion for the king of that kingdom and what that king has done for us. Out of love and devotion for his love towards us, we sacrifice. That's the witness of the kingdom. We've always said here that giving is an act of worship. Because worship is the response of love. And out of the response of love that God has first loved us, we respond in love. And love always shows itself in sacrifice. So the witness of the kingdom is not lip service. The witness of the kingdom is sacrifice. And it's so clearly seen in Mark 14. See, the witness that we belong to the kingdom, please understand is seen by our lip is seen by our sacrifice for it not our lip service to it please understand that the witness that we belong to the kingdom is seen in our sacrifice for it not our lip service to it it has always and will always include sacrifice that's one reason i'm so thankful that jen and jeff are doing this financial peace university here's what i know it's not about being wealthy, it's about being free. Because the truth is, it doesn't matter what you make, it matters what you keep, right? And so many people are slaves to this financial kingdom of bondage because of debt and the past. And so many people are slaves to not being able to be free to sacrifice and for generosity in all of its forms. Well, I was reading this passage, and I noticed what this woman did for Jesus. This was right on the eve of him being arrested. He was going to go into uh, illegal trials, arrest, beatings, and crucifixion. What I noticed about this lady is that she gave to and honored him at the right moment while she had the opportunity, because soon she would not have that opportunity. There would soon be no time and no opportunity to lavish upon Jesus the honor he was due. You know what I, I thought? I thought we ought to do that while we can, when we can. And we ought to do it not just to Jesus, but to those in our lives that we love and we ought to honor. If... if if you're sitting next to someone in church, not all of you, but likely as I'm looking out here, you're sitting next to someone that's important to you. I mean, at some level, you, 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 and can I just encourage you? Take the opportunity while you have the opportunity to show and give honor and love. Do you understand? 
You've got the opportunity today to show and give honor and love that person you're sitting next to. So, that may cost you a lunch later today to take him out to lunch or something, but it's... Please understand that the witness of the kingdom is sacrifice. And, and so, one of the takeaways for us in this moment is, what has my witness for the kingdom been? Sacrificial? As I look through this passage in, in, in Mark 14, I, I want to jump into a, another little section here. It, it starts in, in verse 4 and 5 and then it goes to verses 10 and 11. And the Bible says this, some of those present at this, at this little anointing, some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Then Judas Iscariot, let's fast forward a little bit. After that little incident happened, a little bit later, Judas Iscariot, the one of the 12, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. He complains that money wasn't being used appropriately. Then he agrees to betray Jesus and he was given money. Here's what I know. Not only is the witness of the kingdom sacrifice, but there's a war of the kingdom. And the war of the kingdom is against every other kingdom. Judas, the one who complained about this money not being given to the poor, the one who betrayed Jesus, Judas, was a follower of Jesus. And he was picked by Jesus to be part of the twelve. We're not told why Judas betrayed Jesus. We're just told that he did. Undoubtedly. In Judas's mind, there was a desire as a Jew for a political kingdom to overthrow Roman occupation. Judas's agenda was for Jesus's kingdom to overthrow Roman occupation. While he looked like a follower of Jesus, Judas wanted a political revolution, and Judas positioned himself under the banner of faith to work a political agenda. Sounds like American politics. Some would say that while Jews appeared to be kingdom-minded, let's take care of the poor, because social justice and taking care of the poor and undeserved is part of the kingdom agenda. Some would say that though he looked like he was a part of the kingdom, all he was doing was trying to force Jesus' hand. In other words, his thought process was, if he's not doing stuff like I think he should be doing it, I'll force his hand politically to get done what I want him to do. If I turn him over to the Romans and his life is at stake, he will enact this political kingdom to overthrow Roman occupation. That was Judas' mindset. And that's why he turned him in. Judas did not have the things of the kingdom on his heart. It seems as though in verse 4 and 5 of Mark 14 that he was indignant that all that money was not given to the poor because after all, the kingdom of God helps the poor and the undeserved and the disenfranchised. Did you ever notice how easy it is to give other people's money away? You understand what I'm saying? Like it's, it's easy to give other people's... Did you ever notice how a $20 bill... Looks so small at the grocery store and so big an offering plate. 
You know what I'm saying? The thing that amazes me, that after he agreed to betray Jesus, they paid him a bunch of money. Why didn't the Bible say he gave that money to the poor? Did you ever think about that? I mean, he really cared. And so the truth of Judas is not just seen in Mark 14. It's also seen and revealed in John chapter 12. And in John 12, verse 6, the Bible says this. He didn't say all that, Judas did, because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As the keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. That's why he wanted a year's wages put into the money bag. Do you understand? Because he was embezzling funds. He didn't care about kingdom stuff. The war of the kingdom will always be against every other kingdom. Now, isn't it a good thing we're not like Judas? Yes. Right? Like this guy. I mean, denying God. And thank the Lord we've never done that. Right? embezzling from God? Are you kidding me? One, none of us have ever stolen from God. I mean, thank God we're not like Jesus. And two, he's God. How do you rob him? Right? I mean, come on. Careful. Because the Bible says, will the mere mortal rob God? How are we going to do that? God says, what you do rob me. And naturally, we'd ask, how do we rob you? You're God. Your tithes and your offerings. Do you realize what the Bible says? That when Christ followers, not those who are not Christ followers, but everybody who claims Christ, who claims to be a kingdom follower, embezzles from God by not tithing and not being generous. Thieves. Robbers embezzling from God. And we are a little bit like Judas. See, there are kingdoms that are part of our lives that are contrary to God's kingdom. And the kingdom of God will always challenge and compete with every other kingdom that is not his. We live in the kingdom of holding on to past grudges and hurts. God's kingdom demands forgiveness, and it will war against every other kingdom. We live in the kingdom of self-preservation. God's kingdom demands trust in his sovereignty, even in scary times, and it will war against every other kingdom. We live in the kingdom of immediate gratification and materialism, and God's kingdom demands tithing and generosity, and it will war against every other kingdom. We we live in the kingdom of worry and control, and God's kingdom demands trust in his sovereignty and protection. And it will war against every other kingdom. And the way we know which kingdom we're living in, no matter what we claim, we'll know which kingdom we're committed to by looking what we exchange for that kingdom's agenda. Judas exchanged the kingdom agenda of God for his agenda of a political revolution. Our kingdoms and God's kingdoms will always be at war. 
Can I tell you some good news? Yes. <laughs> You're like, please, would you get off this? Let me tell you some good news. God is for you. That's good news. The God of heaven is for you. But he's not for your kingdom. The God of heaven is for me, but he's not for my kingdom. The God of heaven is for, the God of heaven is for you, but he's not for your kingdom. He's for his kingdom. He's for you, but he's for his kingdom. And God will war against and be opposition to, in, in opposition to every kingdom that is opposed to his agenda. But he is for you. But please understand what that means. If we are for another kingdom, we've put ourselves in opposition to God. And it's no wonder why so many people who claim Christ are so miserable and having such a tough time. Because we're living oftentimes in our kingdom according to our agenda. And we've set ourselves up in opposition to God's kingdom. And there's only one of those two, us or God, who's going to win that battle. Now he might let us skate for a little while. But not forever. So we must choose wisely which kingdom we leverage our energy, our money, and our decisions toward. Choose wisely. Our problem is that our natural default is to self. So the witness of the kingdom is sacrifice. And the war of the kingdom is against every other kingdom. So just consider, what's the witness that my sacrifice has given? And are there kingdoms in my world that are in competition with God's kingdom? Look at this other thing. Jump way down to verse 32 in Mark 14. After this supper, after this anointing, the supper, Jesus retreats to to the place that he loved to go to be alone with his father, to be to spend time in prayer and meditation and contemplation, to seek guidance and wisdom. This Garden of Gethsemane, real old olive trees. You can still go to the, the, this place uh, today if you go over to Israel. It's amazing. We got to take communion uh, in this place. It's, it's, it's absolutely amazing. He goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, they went to the place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John along with him, the three, and began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He said to them, stay here and keep what? Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, that's a word translated, Daddy. Papa, this is a term of endearment. Everything is possible for, for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing. But your humanity is so weak. The witness of the kingdom is sacrificed. The war of the kingdom is against every other kingdom. And the warning of the kingdom is to watch. Stay diligent. Don't get distracted. 
This is the exact thing that Mark 13 ended with in Jesus' words. Watch. He says, what I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. He told all his disciples, things are going to start getting bad. Difficulties coming. Watch. Don't be startled and don't be scared by the difficulties and pains that are coming. Watch. Don't get distracted. Be on alert. And at the most crucial, excruciating moment prior to his arrest and subsequent crucifixion, Jesus brought his three disciples with him, Peter, James, and John. Why those three? He left the others behind. Those three. Why those three? He could have got Bartholomew and Thaddeus and anybody else, but he brought Peter, James, and John. Why those three? No Bible readers here? You know why. You read the Bible, you know why. Some would say that it's because those were his closest friends. Those were the, like there was 12, but there were three on the inner circle. Like, you've got your group of friends, right? But you've got a couple that you're tight with, right? This is Peter, James, and John. Some would say that's why he brought those three. Could be. I'm going to give another reason why. Because of what these three said to Jesus. You go back in Mark chapter 10. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Well, what do you want me to do for you, Jesus said. They said, let us sit at your right and your uh, let us sit at your right and the other on your left when you come into your glory. We want to be your right and left hand man. Well, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'll be baptized with? I, I, I'm gonna suffer for the sins of the world. Can you can you die like I'm gonna die? And they're like, yeah, no problem. We can do that. And then he had Peter. In Matthew 26, even if I'll fall away and I'm counting you, I never will. These three are the three that personally claimed to Jesus that they would suffer with him and stand with him even to death. And so Jesus simply allowed them the opportunity to prove that they would do what they said they would do. You want to talk a big game? Fine, let's go. You're going to have the opportunity to stand with me. You're going to have the opportunity to suffer for me. You're going to have the opportunity to die with me. You ready? You talk to talk. Now I want you to walk it. That's why he invited those three. Here's what I know. Kingdom people will be given every opportunity to prove that the kingdom is the priority in their life. So keep watch. Watch for your opportunity to show the priority of the kingdom. Watch for your opportunity. Watch so that other kingdoms don't start threatening the kingdom's priority in your life. Watch. Be alert. Stay awake. You'll be given the opportunity to prove its priority. The witness of the kingdom is sacrifice. The war of the kingdom is against every other kingdom. The warning of the kingdom is to watch. Don't get distracted. But there's one other thing. At the end of this chapter, 
The Bible says this. This is after the Garden of Gethsemane, after the arrest, after his beatings. Right during that time, right before he's crucified, while Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls, Jesus is going through all the six bogus trials, three religious and and three political trials. And he's going through all this and he's being Right up to his being, he's in this court. Peter's below in the courtyard. And one of the servants girls who stand around the servants of the high priest came by. And when she saw Peter warming himself by this tiny little fire, she looked closely at him. And she said, you were also with that Nazarene Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about. And he went out in the entryway. Get away. When the servant girl saw him there. She said again to those standing around, this fellow's one of them. Again, he denied it. And after a little while, those standing near said to Peter, surely you're one of them. You are a Galilean like he is. And he began to call down curses on himself. And he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered the word Jesus spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you'll disown me three times. He broke down and wept. See, Peter could talk a big talk. Even if I'll fall, fall away, I will not. I'll be with you even to death. Peter was given the opportunity to prove that he'd be faithful to his word, and he dropped the ball. Peter had every opportunity to prove his devotion, and he turned the other way. It begs the question to us, have you ever failed? Have you ever failed the person you love the most? Have you ever failed the person you love the most in the way you swore you never would? Welcome to the life of Peter. You know what one of the greatest fears of failure is? is how the person we've failed is going to respond to us. That's one of the greatest fears. How are they going to respond when I have to see them face to face? Imagine how Jesus could have responded. See, if the witness of the kingdom is sacrifice and the war of the kingdom is against every other kingdom... And the warning of the kingdom is to watch what's the way of the kingdom. Well, this is what I love about my Jesus. John 21. After the crucifixion, after the resurrection, Jesus has appeared to hundreds of people at this point. He's the resurrected king, and he tells the guys, they're out fishing and he calls them in and he's sitting around this little fire and he tells, hey, get Peter. I want to talk to Peter. And and he makes sure that he has a conversation with Peter. And around this little campfire, much like the campfire under around which Peter denied him, Jesus asked Peter, hey, Simon, do you love me more than the rest of these guys? Yes, Lord, you, you know I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. 
Again, Jesus said, Simon, do you love me? I mean, you claimed you did. Well, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, well, take care of my sheep. The third time he said, Simon, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, Peter, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And Jesus said, follow me. I'm reinstating you. Here, here's the thing. How many times did Peter deny Jesus? Three. How many times did Jesus ask Peter if he loved him? Three. Now, that's tough enough. But can I share with you why this was particularly painful for Peter? It wasn't just that Jesus asked him three times, as in Peter's denial three times. Here's what's going on behind the scenes that we don't understand in the English language. We have to understand Greek. The thing that was more painful is the first time Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? Jesus used the word agape. Do you agape me, Peter? Agape is the highest level, the highest form, the highest function of love. It's love above life itself. It's exactly what Peter claimed. Even if all deny you, I'll go with you to death. So Jesus asked, do you really love me like that? Peter's response was, God, you know, Jesus, you know that I phileo you, not agape. It was a lesser love. It's a brotherly love. It's like, I like you. You know that. The second time Jesus asked Peter, Peter, do you agape me like you said you did? You said you would go to death with me. Do you love me like that? Do you love me more than all these others like you claimed you did? And Peter the second time says, Jesus, you know that I phileo you. I like you. The Bible says that Peter was distressed the third time he asked. Because the third time Jesus asked Peter, he said, Peter, do you only phileo me? He didn't use the word agape. And in that distress, Peter said, you know. You know that my love is faulty and half-hearted at best. See, what happened there is Peter had to admit his failure and his frailty before he could be reinstated. Here's what happens. Watch this. We want Jesus to think the best of us, but Jesus knows the truth of us. See, this is why. As long as Jesus said, Peter, do you agape me? Peter's thinking in the back of his head, he still thinks I do. Maybe he doesn't realize that I denied him so much. Maybe he still thinks, maybe he still believes that I do agape him. As long as Jesus said, do you agape me? Maybe Jesus still thinks the best of me, right? The moment Jesus said, Peter, you only like me, don't you? His fault and his failure and his frailty was called out by Jesus himself, the one who was supposed to love, and it cut him to the core. 
And this is why you and I play so many religious games. This is why you and I put on so many masks to pretend as though we're good enough to be loved. This is why we tell ourselves, I'm a good person. And because I'm a good person, I'm worthy for Jesus to love. That's false. Here's the danger in that. If I believe Jesus loves me because I'm good enough to love, I sacrifice his mercy and grace in my life. And so we come to Jesus and we say, I know how I'm supposed to love you. Supposed to. But I know how I really do. And we tell Jesus, I need you to love me. And be merciful and gracious to me anyway. See, if the witness of the kingdom is sacrifice, and the war of the kingdom is against every other kingdom, and the warning of the kingdom is to watch, the thing I love about the kingdom of God is that the way of the kingdom is mercy and grace. This is what I love about the kingdom. See, the way of the kingdom is even when I've denied him, he offers mercy and grace. The way of the kingdom is even when I've betrayed him, he offers mercy and grace. The way of the kingdom is even when I reject him, he offers me mercy and grace. Even when I've embezzled from him, he offers mercy and grace. We just got to come clean before him. So the way of the kingdom, for those of us who choose to enter it and pursue it, is undeserved and unmerited mercy and grace. That's the good news in the way of the kingdom. And I want to invite you once again, for the first time or the hundredth time, to receive the invitation and come into the kingdom of God. I want you to pray with me. Father, thank you that you've loved us with an unrelenting, everlasting love. We have fumbled the ball. We have rejected you. We've denied you. We've embezzled from you. <laughs> we've done <laughs> everything wrong. And yet you stand there Offering us mercy and grace. Because that is the way of your kingdom. In this morning. There are some of us in this place. Who ask again. Entrance into your kingdom. In faith, believe in your heart that Jesus is the Lord. And in faith, confess with your mouth that God raised him from the dead. And find entrance into the kingdom of God. There's no doubt that we've fumbled the ball. And there's no doubt that we've been offered mercy and grace. Accept it. Say in the quietness of your heart, Father, forgive me for my sin. In spite of what I've done, 
and in advance of what I do, respond to me according to the blood Jesus shed on the cross. I accept you as the leader of my life. Help me to live in the reality and the experience of your kingdom. Let my sacrifice, let my witness be one of sacrifice. I sacrifice every kingdom that's contrary to your kingdom. God, let me watch and not be distracted, to be alert and aware. Thank you that your way in your kingdom is mercy and grace. Jesus, thank you that you've broken the power of sin, that you've destroyed the darkness of the dark. Thank you that your love is mighty. Thank you, God, that you and your kingdom are strong and secure. And in this morning, in this place, once again, by faith in Jesus, because of your grace, we step back into your kingdom, that kingdom that is mercy, that kingdom that is grace. Once again, let your kingdom come.